Should we record our soundbite? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be like a Hi, I'm Freya. Hi, my name's Aaron. And this is. Oh, we didn't decide on the oh, name. Shit, we haven't thought about the name. <laughs> God. Uh... <laughs> I'm Freya and I'm Aaron and this is the Homeward Bound podcast where we talk about current themes in immigration and migration in the UK. This week we're going to be demystifying, debunking and discovering why people may choose to come to the UK. Choice being the operative word. Isn't that right Aaron? Absolutely and speaking of coming to the UK, ever wondered where chicken tikka masala comes from? (laughs) I was always wondering that because for the longest time I did think it was uh, Indian, but I figured out recently <laughs> it's uh, Glas- Glaswegian. Glaswegian. Yeah, <laughs> who would have thought, thought? And it's a shame because, you know, I was born, raised in India, you know, uh, didn't have chicken tikka masala, but I had a whole bunch of other stuff. So I just thought it was maybe, I don't know, northern Indian food because I come from the south. I come to the UK. And I find out this is the homeland of chicken tikka masala. It's everywhere. It turns out it's the national dish of the UK. I honestly thought it would be fish and chips, but <laughs> it blows my mind. How's the, how's the spice level for you? It's not spicy at all, yeah. I gotta say, I'm, I think my tolerance has gone down after coming to the UK for <laughs> spices. I need to build it back up. By Your mum's going to be so disappointed. Yeah, have a few more visits back to India. So, today, we're going to be talking about uh, migration in general. And what we mean by migration, of course, is uh, what we say in the UK is just a change in usual residence of one's country. So, in the UK, they treat migrants and refugees as one and the same. Not exactly the same, but refugees as a subset of migrant. Mm. Whereas you'll see in international law, for example, there is a distinction. It's a distinction in the sense that migrants are people who choose to come to the UK and refugees are those who may choose on a superficial level, but the background is that they were, they had little choice. They fled their country, uh, not because they wanted to, but because they had to. Mm. Choice yeah. being the operative word. Yeah. Mm. There are a few things that I found interesting, to be honest. One being uh, what we found in 2022 is that there was an upsurge in immigration to the UK. So about 600,000 people in general moved to the UK each year from, and this was recorded between 2004 and 2017. But we see that in 2012, that figure jumped to about 1.1 million, which is an all-time high that is unlikely to be matched anytime soon. And is that uh, net migration? Nope, that would not be net migration, actually. So net migration would be about 600,000 for uh, 2022 because 557,000 people left the UK. Oh, so nearly as many arriving as leaving. Nearly, yeah. More than half. Uh, of the people that came in. So uh, 1.2 million came in and almost 600,000 people left. Okay. That's it. But it does come down to to the question of why 
people do come to the UK. That there were four reasons that were posited by the Migration Observatory. Um, and this is based on ONS results as well, like uh, the Office of National uh, Statistics. And the first reason I found was work. So in 2018, for example, the main reasons that people gave for moving to the UK for at least a year was work. About 217,000. And uh, a lot of people also came from formal, formal studies, which is about 211,000. Um, another reason is just to see family. So immigration to a company or join a family member, but not the biggest reason, I would say. It's uh, between 12 to 13 percent of mm. the number of people that do come in on average. So nothing um, too surprising so far. It's yeah. predominantly why, I mean, if your friend said, I'm moving to Germany tomorrow, your first two guesses would be, oh, they've got family there. They're right. going to work there. They're going to study there. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And study is a big one, too. And I would say it's probably one of the biggest ones. Um, even in 2022, for example, um, 43% of the huge increase in immigration was because of people just coming here to study. In higher education? Higher education. Wow. Yeah. 43%. Exactly. Some other reasons are humanitarian reasons. Uh, so humanitarian visa routes and refugee settlement accounted for about 30% of the increase. And 20%, 24% was skilled workers. Is there anything you found as well? So this week, I actually looked at the last point that you raised, which mm. is why do asylum seekers come to the UK? Yeah. Obviously, this category of people is in a distinct set of circumstances to the category that you were just describing, where yeah. people enter the UK via lawful means for work, on study visas, mm -hmm. uh, to be with family. The substance of those reasons, in some cases, still stand. Having family ties, for example, which I'll come to later. Yeah. However, the most important thing to recognise is someone's asylum seeker status. Yeah. The big difference, really, that we see in terms of why people are coming to the UK, one thing that they're not coming for is a thoroughly researched employment and social benefits plan. Right. So we see this talking point quite a lot. People are coming here because we have a welfare state, because we have universal credit and housing benefits. Mm -hmm. Right. Like um, when I was a kid, I was a refugee. And when we fled India... It's not like my mom was like looking at the welfare system of Canada or something like that. Didn't have she the brochures looking, out. Yeah, she didn't have the brochures out, look at all the laws of, oh, how we can take advantage of this system. Mm. And uh, no, it's more like we need to go somewhere and we need to go somewhere where we can call home. And our, luckily our family was also in Canada and that was a big reason as to why we chose to go there, you know. There's a study I actually found here uh, which I can link at the end of the episode, which talks about the significant reduction. This sounds like an obvious point, but I think it's worth reflecting on, which is the significant reduction in planning, pre-mediation and preparation that an asylum seeker will take mm. when leaving their home country to travel to the UK because they're acting in response to an immediate threat. So we often think war or civil war or conflict. Right. However, those immediate threats can also be genocides, ethnic cleansings, yeah. uh, military occupations. So 
it doesn't always have to be happening on a national scale for someone to be an asylum seeker. True. And indeed, someone can be a refugee simply by moving places within their own country as well. Yeah. If you've got um, a, a conflict happening in the east of a country, that population can be displaced to the west of the country. And over half of the world's refugee population are internally displaced refugees. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that one, actually. Half... Mm. So it's around 50, 55 million are internally displaced and then an additional 25, 27 million uh, refugees are then globally displaced displaced. outside of their home country. Ah. That side of asylum, I feel like we don't really hear about much. We don't really think of internal displacement as a form of asylum. Mm. Actually, the majority of resettlement camps are within that same country that the person has been displaced from. No way. Like 50%, you said. It's more than 50%. It's around 53 million, whereas maybe 25 million are displaced globally. Okay. So we're coming up to two-thirds. My God. And that's annually? Like every single year? Currently. Currently. And so I think it's worth us thinking about that fact because... It emphasizes that people don't leave necessarily with a destination in mind when they're displaced. Often, someone's destination is decided en route. And there's significant evidence, uh, a study that I can link, which looks at the fact that uh, Somali asylum seekers, for example, their focus is on arriving in Europe. Their goal necessarily isn't necessarily, sorry, to be in the UK, even if that's ultimately where they end up. And there's also a lot of evidence and a lot of anecdotal accounts about how people arrived in the UK. It wasn't their first intended destination. Mm. And either human trafficking routes or repeated deportation and removal to the border led people to being redirected to the UK once they were in Europe. So their destination either wasn't decided or it wasn't always fixed, Mm. which is where we arrive at why people come here. And that's pretty interesting because like, one of the things that I hear all the time is that, oh, all these uh, refugees, they want to come to the UK. That's like their prime destination. This is, this is the place to be. Uh, they're just like skipping over France. They're skipping over all these other countries. Mm. They want to be in the UK. That's, that's their end goal. That's, what, that's the theme that I often hear from uh, politicians. But when in reality, what we see is that that's not always the case. People don't really know where they'll end up. And sometimes they don't even know that they'll end up in the UK. Yeah. And them arriving here might not only not be their intention, but it might have been a decision based on why they didn't remain somewhere else. Mm. So they may have only decided to keep moving because the country they were in at the time, their transit country, for whatever reason, they didn't view it as safe and suitable. But there are uh, anecdotal stories around people, for example, owing to maybe their sexuality, where they mm-hmm. looked to move on to a country where there was more integration for people who identified a certain way. It's worth noting that people talk a lot about people choosing to come to the UK when they had a country prior to arriving that was a safe option their first safe country. This is the wording that we see a lot in the news. And it's 
interesting actually to look at the UN Refugee Convention. The Convention of 1951 is the first uh, piece of international uh, legislation and protocol that people will go to when they're looking at refugee rights. And no country has ever withdrawn from the convention, which I think is important to highlight because even though there's debates around what a refugee is and what's a migrant and uh, all the influx that we're quote-unquote having to deal with, no one has withdrawn from the fact that they want every human being to have this right should they be displaced. They're serious about their commitment to these uh, treaties. To it in the abstract. And the convention itself says there's no requirement and there's also no requirement in UK law in our case law, so cases that have happened so far, Mm. that refugees have to remain in the first safe country they reach. There is no precedent for that. Gotcha. So if somebody goes to France on the way to the UK, there's nothing saying that, no, they have to be in France. They They could go to the UK. Exactly. They don't have to remain in the first country that they come to. And bear in mind that the vast majority of asylum seekers who do travel to the UK, it's a significant journey to make it all the way to the northwestern corner of Europe. We're 22nd proportionally in terms of European countries, our intake of asylum seekers. So really it's that 1% that makes it to us. And then within that, who's made a pre-mediated choice to come to the UK? So when we're looking at that group of people and we've narrowed it down, we really see three common themes. Okay. The obvious one is family ties. And I think that one overarches between people who migrate for intentional reasons and people who are fleeing or displaced, but still have a degree of intention. If they know that they have family in Germany and France or in the UK, if you were displaced from your home, where is the first place that you would go? To family, yeah. And that's what we did. In order to go to a completely new country and build a completely new home, it's good that you have a little bit of home with you where you go. We chose where our family was. The Refugee Council report that I was looking at last week was talking about how of all the participants in their study and all the asylum seekers in the study, 50% of them had family ties in the UK, most of which were second or third generation family ties. So not simply family members who had gone ahead and established themselves in the UK, claimed asylum in the last five or 10 years, but people who had been living here for a significant amount of time. And this ties us into one of the other main reasons people consciously choose to come to the UK, hmm. or subconsciously, I, I should say, which is our colonial legacy. Right. Pretty big one. <laughs> <laughs> Cultural and historic ties mean that either people associate with the structures and the norms that remain as part of that British rule legacy, or their family has emigrated over to the UK from either an ex-British colony or uh, a Commonwealth country. Often those two are quasi-overlapping. And so it's impossible to separate colonising a number of other countries from the impact now that we see of people who are fleeing persecution or war going to the UK to seek safety. It's not just 
that that family tie and that legacy is there, but there's an overall structural legacy that we need to take responsibility for. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm noticing that with a lot of countries as well. Like, uh, so in the UK, of course, and you get similar uh, situations in France, for example, Belgium and uh, in Spain is what I was going to say. And it's definitely very real that colonization plays a huge role in why we choose the country we're going to live in. And colonization has played out, no one's going to debate its horrific legacy, but it's also played out across culture. So we talk about family ties, we talk about history, but in soft culture as well, in education and even in football, which actually um, talking about culture was the last point I was going to make, which is speaking the same language Mm. helps significantly. Yeah if you are already facing a number of barriers to be able to have a safe and settled life, particularly with your family or trying to earn an income, having to then learn another language to a high level or even fluency to go back to your previous occupation. Imagine being a lecturer in a country where you don't speak English or you don't speak German. Or yeah. You come to the country where you may have a chance of speaking the language. And this actually isn't a major factor but it is an important one for people in certain occupations. Yeah. And, for example, we have nearly one and a half thousand medical, medically qualified professionals who right. are asylum seekers in the UK and not currently practicing. And for them, speaking English plays into why they would choose to be here if they had the choice, yeah. rather than being somewhere like Denmark or Germany. Exactly. And I feel like language is one of those things that gives us a reason not to choose a place as opposed to choosing one, if that makes sense. And so in in one way, language is like um, a way to eliminate options and narrow down where we can go. Um, So in that way, it really does affect our choice in some way. And it's all those small markers that make up where might feel like a place where you could fit in and it can even talking about culture it really does uh, boil down to things like football and I can't believe in a way I'm saying it but you wouldn't believe with the people I work with the number of them that's the first thing you talk about and bond over and it actually got mentioned in this refugee council report as well Uh, it turns out football is part of what makes the world go goes around (laughs) you know what I mean yep of course Uh, yeah I felt like I was under fire when I got asked I said, what's your team? Oh, God, what did you say? I I panicked. I panicked because the only team I support is my granddad's team. I support the team that wins. But when people (laughs) ask, I say Sunderland, which is... Where is Sunderland, to be honest? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I back him. My granddad backed them. But I guess if you're talking like you want a big league team, I'm going to have to give it some thought. Okay. Because I don't want people to dislike us from the first episode. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so where is Sunderland? <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a fade out on that. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks. And in the meantime, if you like this episode, please like it, comment it, give it a thumbs up, share it on whatever platform you're listening to it on. And let us know what you think or what you would like us to discuss next. We would love to hear your thoughts and welcome any conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you.